The following program is part of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations-China podcast series. For more information on the National Committee, visit us at www.ncuscr.org or connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, or Weibo. I'm Dan Murphy, Director of Special Initiatives at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And joining me on the NCUSCR China podcast is Dr. Jiang Lin, Senior Vice President of the Energy Foundation. The Energy Foundation aims to promote sustainable urban development that focuses on people and encourages compact, mixed-use, and transit-oriented development, as well as green transportation systems. John Lin, thanks for joining us. Well, it's good to meet you. China faces massive urbanization challenges. In the next 20 years, the projections I've seen are that 300 to 350 million Chinese will move into urban areas. Your organization works to promote sustainable urban development in China. What kinds of projects are cities in China undertaking to prepare for this massive urbanization, and is the preparation adequate? Well, that's a terrific question. Just to help you set the context, 300 million people, that's the entire U.S. population. We have to build enough urban space uh, uh, accommodations for them to, uh, to move in cities in the next 20 years. So the challenge to, to, to see the least is enormous. Um, and how do you develop uh, in a thoughtful, a sustainable fashion uh, is even more challenging than simply accommodating people. We take uh, you know, two different approaches, both thematically and uh, in terms of process and to, to address this issue. You know, we, first of all, we want to take a pilot approach to figure out how to do it in China. Is it going to be different? The solution package will be different than what's useful in the U.S. or in Europe. And so we want to make sure that we both bring the best idea around the world, but also develop new ones in China in practice and working with a handful of cities who are uh, eager to learn, adapt, and innovate in this space. And hopefully, we can learn enough lessons in those pilot states in the cities that we can replicate and summarize and, uh, and replicate cross-country a later date. So from the pilot to national policy, to national replication is the kind of practical model we're taking in our approach. Semantically speaking, we are really looking at the core issue of land use planning, and transportation planning, and building neighborhood planning. How do you integrate all three together? Why? Because I think those are the fundamental structure of a city. Once those street grids are laid out, once the transportation systems are built, it's very difficult to change it. So you have a very high locking potential. Other things you can change, right? Even building can change. You can tear down a building, build a new one. But once the street grid network is set, once the metro system developed, it's going to be very difficult to change. So getting them right is, to us, the first and foremost urgency. So we're really promoting, as you mentioned before, a design philosophy that centers around people. You know, so, so many of the modern cities are designed to accommodate automobile traffic. People would like to imagine you have wider roads, the car can go faster. And oftentimes, it's the opposite effect uh, leads to congestion. Um, more to the point that wide boulevard cuts off pedestrian and bicycle traffic and segregates the city into different districts, and it's not very helpful. 
Are there one or two cities in China that have been particularly successful in the area of sustainable urban planning or energy use or transportation or the other issues you work on? We have had a great success. I mean, there are many cities trying to find their own path to eco-city, to sustainable city designs. Uh, we, in our practice in the last eight, ten years in this particular space, we have found a few uh, cities who are truly embrace the fundamental design challenge in a systematic fashion. Right? Oftentimes people say, well, if I use the most efficient cars on buses, eco-city. Right? If I simply using the most efficient lighting technology or water treatment technology, then I qualify eco-city. Oftentimes, city is a much complex system of issue. You need a system approach to solve that. So we find a few cities who are really embracing this we, we met our first sort of a breakthrough in Kunming in their design of a new town in Chengbong when government quarters moved from old town to new town and to rebuild. And we brought our experts and design team together to work with their team and did an entirely different redesign of the city. And the idea was very much embraced by the mayor of the city at the time, who was quite a pioneer in this field in China as well. We're now actually going into implementation. Now the design principle has been translated to a zoning code and it's being attached to a land transaction sale contract, which is really you know, coming from design to implementation, as you probably know. Good ideas, good policies are often easier to get adopted, but get them implemented is a huge challenge. And so we're very pleased to see that you know, the, the design we have done, uh, the principle we endorsed, are now translating implementation working in Kunming. And there's a couple other cities we're working, we have a similar um, success in Chongqing, the biggest city in the world, you know, 30 million people, are really trying what variety approach we, we suggested, um, including integrating the land use planning with transportation planning together. Oftentimes, they're, they're not coordinated. For those cities that have been successful with their sustainable urban planning in partnership with you, are there some common factors that have allowed them to be successful? And conversely, for cities that have perhaps not done as well, what are some of the common attributes that they share? First and foremost is uh, the existence of mayor with open mind and great vision for his or her city. So a charismatic, dynamic, committed government leader who's going to be a champion of these right. ideas. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, then strong capability throughout government system to understand the complex issue. City, you know, in China are a huge metropolis. You know, it's extremely difficult. You cannot just take one single solution and apply to them and hope they'll su succeed. You need to work with many agencies, many districts, and many stakeholders so important to have a visionary leader, a mayor in the office, that he can bring people together to jointly solve the problem that for so long has been segregated into different silos. That's why it never worked. Right? So now someone needs to bring people together. Um, you need designers or design communities who embrace the new idea, who have a people-centered solution to address the problem. Right? So much the car dominant design philosophy in translate from you know old days and that's you know no longer applicable um, both in China or in the U.S. Right, we know that. So people have to be embrace a new idea. So innovation, open minded, has to be very very important. And certainly, I think that 
at some level of collaboration between the, the civil societies, the NGO actors, with government and other technical institutions are, are really important to have a consistent and persistent voice to advocate for a positive change. Otherwise, you could have you know, one thing done and being shelved and very easily. You see that all, all over, uh, all the time. There are many organizations now entering China to work on energy and environment issues. Uh, the Energy Foundation has been working in China since 1999. What have you learned that would be useful to other organizations seeking to work in China? Is there a particular project that perhaps taught you something valuable about the way China operates or what the Energy Foundation needs to do to be successful in China? Well, first of all, I think it really takes a partnership mentality to, to be successful in China. You need, I think the, the way we approach the problem is we try to help our Chinese partners to succeed. It's never, we are here to teach you some wingspan technology or new ideas that never been tried anywhere else. We want to bring the idea to, to China, share with our partners, and try to work together to see whether those be, would work or not in China. If they don't, let's modify, let's find a new solution that can address the local problem. Instead, try to trans, always transplant a, a foreign idea into China. Um, second, I think China is incredibly um, dynamic in many ways, both in government circles and society, in the way it deals with the problems. So you need to, I think you need to be open-minded yourself to look for partners who share your ideas and share the same visions and share the same goal. I think that's really important to identify those people uh, to work with. And I think in the search is being flexible. You know, things are always going to be different. <laughs> it can never be truly wrong by a five-year plan, right, so to speak. China accounts for about 25% of global carbon dioxide emission. It's the world's highest percentage, even though China's per capita carbon emissions are below those of the United States. China has resisted calls for absolute cut in carbon emissions, instead focusing on reductions to its carbon intensity. Do you see China taking steps to address climate change that might spur action by the United States, or do you see the United States perhaps taking the lead and taking some actions that might encourage China to address climate change? Kim, do we have some reasons for hope here on the issue of climate change? I think so. I'm hopeful. The, the way look, for me to look at it is the climate change is really a global problem. It's bigger than what China or U.S. can do alone. So we, we have to work together. There's no other way around. You know, this is reality, and let's be real about that. Um, both countries can take significant actions to improve their current performance in terms of carbon mitigation, addressing the risk in the future. And China in the, in the last 10 years has done tremendous amount of work in both improving the efficiency of its economy and deploying cleaner source of energy, which are less carbon intensive. In fact, China probably now is a leader in terms of installing wind turbines and solar panels in the world. So I think China is taking a real action. U.S., you know, in the recent years, has taken a great step forward when President Obama announced we are moving our fuel economy standards to a higher level by you know, 55 miles per gallon by 2025. That's a significant improvement because in the U.S., we use a lot of oil and gasoline. That's our emission. Um, so we both have taken some action. 
But I think we can do more. There's very helpful conversation in China to start tracking the carbon intensity target by starting cap and trade pilots in regions. And uh, so I think this, in fact, this month, the Shenzhen ETS will launch um, fairly soon. And there's a couple other pilots will launch their equivalent cap and trade market in China by end of this year. In the U.S., we have essentially California leading the effort, and with some of the uh, East Coast state uh, joining the part as well. So you can see, although neither country has done a national cap and trade yet, there's regional market that's been deployed in having experimentation to, to figure out how you actually do this in real time, in real economic situations. And that will provide lesson learned going forward to take a national market. The Energy Foundation has worked to promote low carbon development in China's cities. What specific incentives do local officials in China have to pursue this line of work? In so many ways, there's not, not a specific incentive, you know, monetary incentive for them. However, the leaders, are, are, the leaders are those people who can recognize the problem they have and the way to get around the problems. Right? So they all recognize the current way of development which is essentially a high-density sprawl, not so different than the U.S. model, right? In fact, it's replicating U.S. model with a much greater density. And they see the end of the road. You cannot continue to develop this way, right? Beijing, the traffic, if it's not all the time, but it's a lot of times, <laughs> even with a restriction in terms, you know, license plate and driving, you know, permits. And there's a huge amount of air pollution, that's blanketing most Chinese cities. It shows you cannot continue the way you have done in the past. You need to find a new path. So the visionary leaders are the ones who are earliest recognized they had to take a different path forward and embrace a new design features to, to take their own city to be a leader's position for the future. See, we've got about a minute left, so I'll just ask my final question. You mentioned that the Energy Foundation uh, takes a pilot program approach in China, tries to bring in best practices, but also tries to develop new ideas to accomplish your work that are suitable to China's conditions. Are there some specific ideas that you've seen used in China that would be useful here in the United States? Well, one of the things I think is an uh, interesting lesson for us to learn is um, China has been very open to new ideas for the last 30 years. In my mind, that's one of the most significant factors of success China has had in the last 30 years, both in terms of experimenting with their economic reform and other you know, forms of a change, uh, positive social change. So people, in fact, has taken to heart the American spirit, the can-do spirit. For some reason, we seem to have lost that American spirit. Oh, trying to have something daring and new. I think that's something we need to, to relearn and take it back to our own country in terms of developing sustainable infrastructures. For example, high-speed rail systems. We seem to be stuck in terms of developing new high-speed rail lines. We can't move forward. We need to learn how to do that in our own country. Jiang Lin, it's been a very interesting conversation, and I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Dan.